0: Joining me today, I've got Jeremy Harbour. Jeremy runs the Harbour Club and has become known for the guy who teaches business owners how to acquire businesses with no cash upfront. It's a different style to what we're normally talking to on this podcast, but we need to learn about all different styles. So welcome, Jeremy. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, great, thanks. Hey, look, it's a different approach. Why don't you tell us and give the listeners a bit of a heads up about your background and how you got started and uh, we'll jump in from there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, look, I, I come from this from uh, uh, an entrepreneur's background. So, I think a lot of people in M and A come through, you know, either an MBA or through, you know, corporate finance or business broking or you know one of these investment banking or something like that. I come, I come, come at this from an entrepreneur. So, I started businesses and built them. know from scratch um you know learning about sales and marketing learning about how you manage teams you know dealing with all the the crap that business owners have to deal with basically the blood the sweat and the years they have to pour into building their businesses so i think that helped me a lot in terms of empathizing with other business owners um, because i think when you're doing deals with owner-managed businesses it, it really helps if you can create empathy and create rapport with them so that they understand you know that that you're coming from the right place and that uh, you know that that this is a a potential sort of uh, win-win. Just in terms of how uh, you know deals came about for me I had a telecoms company in the 1990s and telecoms was just very acquisitive everyone was buying everybody else and so that was my first exposure to it really was sitting on the other side of the table from a bunch of people trying to buy my business. And, uh, the, the thing I realized is that none of them really had any money. Um, they were all pitching deals that were kind of jammed tomorrow. And I just figured, shit, I don't have any money either. Maybe I should be on the other side of the table. <laughs> and, um, and that was what I did. I just went and started pitching telephones companies and I found a 13 year old company that uh, had about a thousand customers. We were probably connecting about a thousand customers a year. So, you know, this represented a year's worth of sales. Um, I was able to put a, put a deal together. I, I didn't have any money, so it had to be a no-money-down deal. I think I had a choice of paying my staff or my credit card, you know, not, not didn't have uh, uh, this big pot of extra cash. So just structured a deal where I didn't pay anything up front, got the customers on day one, um, and, yeah, grew, grew by a year's worth of sales in an afternoon, and that just opened my eyes to this. It was like I lifted the curtain up, and there's this whole new world behind it that I never knew uh, existed, and... Um, so yeah, that was really my my kind of first foray
0: into uh, into M and A. If you can't beat them, join them. Exactly. So so you acquired the company so and you structured the deal from your side with no money down. What did it yeah. look like for the the founders of the the telecoms business? Yeah, so
1: so the business was thirteen years old. Um, the building it was in was about to be demolished. So from their perspective, they were going to have to invest about seventy thousand pounds moving the business to another. Uh, location Um, the business has made thirteen thousand pounds of profit in the previous year net profit Um, it was a retail outlet so the guy had to work saturdays and and long hours during the week and he also had a side hustle which was doing uh, property development uh, which he was making far more money out of but could probably make even more money if he could dedicate more time to it and actually i mean logically if you just look at that you know that business had given him a reasonable income in the early years when mobile phones were booming and he was making really good money but in in the more recent years it tailed off and that was why it was only making this 13 grand a year logically he should have locked the door two years ago and just walked away from the thing and focused on the property development because he would have made far more money but people have this strange attachment to the time they've invested in something, you know? So once you're 10 years in, you can't just walk away from it. You feel like you have to do something with it. And, you know, I I, I often use the expression when the horse is dead, it's time to get off. You know, (laughs) Um, you you can't just keep doing this and wasting your life. But anyway, he wanted to see something out of it. And so basically we just did a deal that gave him 15,000 pounds, which is a little bit more than a year's uh, income, um, but it would be paid over time as we migrated his customers over, and he could go off and focus on his property development right away. Um, and you know, I think he felt there was better deals out there. He felt somebody else should be able to pay him more than that for the thousand customers and the thirteen years. Um, but basically, what happened was, uh, you know, he ran out of time. He was running around looking for somebody to try and buy it. He was advertising it. He had it on with a broker. He was doing all these things and um and yeah i literally completed the deal on the day the bulldozers were outside about to knock the building down i mean it was literally you know the day that he had to be out Uh, so uh, yeah i had that i mean i think if i didn't have that ticking time bomb i wouldn't have closed the deal because i was too young and too naive to 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 do it i needed that kind of pressure
0: yeah so looking back you're really doing him a favor because yeah it was what 13 grand profit for him a year you know, he was doing much better things. He wasn't taking it anywhere. But it's you you, you open a strange conversation there because business owners have this often distorted, unrealistic view of, of what their business is worth. And- yeah, per- perpetuated by brokers, mind you. So, you
1: know, they pick yeah. up a copy of the Sunday Times, they see the advert in there with all the businesses for sale and they go, oh, here's a printing company that does 1.2 million a year revenue for sale for 3 million. That means my printing company must be worth nine million. <laughs> <But> <laughs> exactly,
0: exactly. Yeah. It, right. and it's part of, you know, sometimes they go, I want, you know, one, five, or ten mil. There's always a, a nice round number like that. Yeah, well, based yeah, yeah. on what? Well, based on what it owes me, you know, because I've invested all the time Yeah, yeah. yeah like, take
1: take the number of directors and multiply it by a million, that's always a good gauge. That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and, well, I just want this much, you know, so then I can yeah. retire. Well, have you had any financial planning? No. So it's just yeah. a nice round number that it's a return. And, and I think yeah. that that psychology you know, comes across to everything. Yes, the brokers have mm-hmm. a bit to answer for as well, and there's some good guys out there, and, and well, yeah, and, um, you yeah, know, like every industry, there's a mix. But yeah. What I've noticed also is, you know, from someone who's done a fair few sales is when someone comes to sell their car, the starting point mm. is, or the house, you know, their numbers are much higher than yeah, yeah. reality what the market wants to pay. And yeah. at some point, you know, businesses yeah. Are but I, but I think
1: businesses are a little bit harder to pin the valuation down on because there are so many factors that drive valuation. And, you know, small businesses in particular, where, you know, owner-managers are typically doing the work of three people for the salary of half a person and then expecting that not to be factored into... You know the eventual price that the business sells for, and they're yep. thoroughly unprepared to sell. Um, they, you know, they haven't got any of their deal room or uh, data room together. They haven't got any basic information that you you need in order to be able to assess the business. They have the unrealistic expectations of what they think it's uh, uh, worth, and you know, it's it's almost like the perfect storm. Only I mean, it's a shit storm. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Well, it just yeah, leads us to, you know, there's, there's a lot of literature being written over the last you know, 30, 40 years, I guess, about, you know, we need to work on our business and not in our business. And I think yeah. business owners, you know, on the whole are aware of that principle. Whether they mm-hmm. do anything or not is different, but they are aware yeah. of it. What I'm just realizing now, and, and you know, I'm primarily UK-based, is that you know business owners aren't aware that they need to prepare their business if they wanna go through an exit. They're just mm. building their business, running along day-to-day often, and saying, hey, look, my business is my pension. I'm not doing any pension planning around it, but, you know, and they're treating it as a job, and they've just got a revenue stream but they're not yeah. preparing it. And as you say, yeah, you know, we've got a whole lot of directors doing the, the work of 10 men or 10 people. Mm. Um, we haven't got a deal room. We, we haven't got control of our finances. You know, It's a shit story. Well, what would you say? We've, we've got a great solution for this that we
1: recommend. Uh, we, we get a lot of people come onto my, my Harbor club community who run their own business already. And my first bit of advice is always sell your business because, you know, uh, the, the, the adage I always use is the right time to sell your business is now because you just don't know what's around the corner. There could be a, I don't know, a global pandemic or uh, <laughs> like, um, or Google could start to do it for free. You know, there are all these disruptors coming into pretty much every industry now. So, you know, my advice is to sell, create the capital event, invest that capital, get passive income, go and do the things that you really want to do in business and um, but the recommendation I always make the first thing is to make yourself non-executive in your own business. so effectively get out of the day-to-day operations. Now that's very easy to say and very hard to do yeah. and I actually yeah. recommend doing it with an acquisition. So if you want to find somebody that's really good at running a business that looks like yours, right now they're running a business that looks like yours. Um, If you try and recruit for that position, you're going to overpay, you're going to get somebody that's untested, you're not going to know if they're going to be able to actually do the job. Whereas if they're already running the competitor down the road or another business in the same industry, You know that they're good at doing that. Plus, they're probably doing that half the, you know, three times the work for half the salary. So, by bringing them, bringing the two businesses together for them to run the whole thing is a great way of getting a management team in place that's already, they don't have to get up to speed. They're already doing what you do. There's obviously going to be differences they have to adapt to and and learn. But you can achieve that with a merger. And a merger is just an, as you know, just an acquisition using shares instead of cash. So, you give up a bit of equity, but you get, Uh, you get yourself non-executive, you also get a bigger business. And as you all know, selling bigger businesses is easier than selling smaller businesses. And if you don't F about, I'll use that word rather than the full uh, version, if you don't F about with all the synergies and trying to do all of that stuff, which is where you can waste a lot of time and energy, if you leave the businesses relatively separate, apart from that top management tier, um, you actually leave something on the table for the buyer as well, because the buyer will look at that lack of integration and see it as an opportunity. I see it as a massive mess that you're going to get bogged down in for the next two years. <laughs> but they will see it as an opportunity. Hey, look, you've got two accounting systems and you've got two bookkeepers and you've got you know, two, two offices and two customer service teams. And you know, they'll just see that as being low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, sorting it out. So, um, so using a merger is a great way of effectively getting someone in the business that you can then sell. So you might, you might be 50% shareholder instead of 100% shareholder, but you're selling the business with somebody in the driving seat. And I've actually seen this with, a, with one of our Harvard Club delegates who didn't take my advice. And he was a 50% shareholder and he had a, a, a passive investor in, in the US who was the other 50%. And he got offered um, 18 million pounds by Lloyd's Development Capital, the VC firm. 18 million pounds, but it was 9 million pounds cash to the guy who sat on the beach in the US doing nothing and 9 million pounds of shares invested over five years to the entrepreneur who had founded it, built it for 10 years with his bare hands and, uh, and was in there operating it. So if you don't make yourself more executive, the entrepreneur you, you, the entrepreneur usually gets screwed and, the, and the, you know, the passive investor normally gets cashed out.
0: Yeah, I think one of my clients summed it up really well once and he said to me, ah, so what you're saying to me, Daryl, is the more I work in my business, the the less it's worth. <laughs> Bingo, summed it up beautifully. Yeah.
1: Very simple. Yeah,
0: exactly. Keeping it simple as my style. So, um, and and so yeah, non-executive, get them out of the business, and you know, get a couple of mergers. Great idea because I think. Well, one of the big reasons we see that business owners want to get out of their business is that they're just stressed. You know, they're working four jobs in, in the one, as you mentioned, you know, and they're not getting a proper rate of pay. Um, and they're just stressed and frustrated. And, that, you know, what's yeah, the I know. Well, it's, it's funny when you
1: start a business, you know, whatever you think the reasons for starting the business, you know, you're normally solving a problem or, you know, seeing an opportunity but on some level you start it because you want freedom you want financial freedom and you want time freedom and, and then, then you start, start this business and it takes away all your freaking time and all your money <laughs> it's, uh, and That's becomes terrible. a prison and then two decades later you look back and go shit i'm still doing this you know <laughs> and there's i a hate my escape. business
0: this <laughs> is where they end up and 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 they're the ones that just want to give it away and, and sometimes, you know, they're the ones who are stuck in the detail, as you say, you know, who are, who are picking up the low hanging fruit, whereas, you know, someone else needs to get that, you know, their career board, and, and we need to find a new job for them. And that is non-executive, as you say, where they can work on deals and strategies and, and the things that will flow through and add value to the business from an asset perspective, rather yeah. than from a, an income perspective. Yeah, absolutely. That non-executive role,
1: once you've done that merger, is joint ventures, mergers, acquisitions, and exits. That should be the day job. Every conversation you're having, every meeting you have should be on those four topics and not really
0: anything else. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and one of the things that I add in there is... is is. The culture of a business is always the reflection of the owners. So whatever yeah. you your style, um, the businesses the the it's just replicated through the business. So I go just be aware that you're like the sun in the solar system of that business. Whatever you radiate mm-hmm. out is what everyone was what inspires people and what they pick up and run with. They yeah. are, they'll run to your lowest standard you set. Yeah. So uh, good, yeah. Good advice. Yeah. So it seems that uh, yeah, we're not too far away after all. We've got a whole lot of uh, similar strategies. You're picking <laughs> up opportunities where you know people have just you know got themselves. They haven't done any planning. You know they've often, by the sound of it, run out of options and you're doing them a favor in many cases. Yeah, there's actually a lot of different,
1: yeah, there's a lot of different types. So there's, there's what you've just described, which I guess, you know, that fits a lot of the baby boomers that don't want to waste the next two years trying to sell their business. They want to kind of get on with their retirement. Um, You've got distressed companies where perhaps they've uh, got themselves into a bit of a pickle financially or administratively that they need uh, they need to resolve and then the other end of the spectrum which is actually where I do most of my deals is actually uh, business owners who don't want to leave their business. They love their business, um, they want to grow it but they feel frustrated they're hitting that glass ceiling um, and so um, this, is, this is probably where I do most of my work. The, la- the last 23 deals, 23 of them have been this type of business so typically companies doing somewhere between a million and, and 10 million of annual profit um, they're typically a couple of decades or more old. The average age of the last uh, um, 23 deals I did has been over 20 years in, in uh, yeah. establishment. Um, and basically, you know, they feel like they've, they've solved all the startup problems. They've kind of got over all of those hurdles. Um, they want to scale, but if they borrow money from the bank, they have to bet the house and they've got to that time in life where you have to stop putting everything on black and spinning the wheel. That's not going to work forever. Um, they can't get VCs involved because they're not selling marijuana or blockchain or they don't have some flappy birds app. Um, they can't get private equity because they've got an enterprise value less than $100 million. And so they've got great businesses that spit off cash and they could be punching so much more above their weight, but they just feel they're missing out on contracts to big competitors. They're not attracting the best talent and they want want to move beyond that. And and for those guys, we put them into what we call our agglomerations. And agglomerations are effectively um, publicly listed conglomerates of small businesses. So that we create a portfolio of small businesses that are diversified across countries and currencies and products and services. Um, we have um, the liquidity of being a fully reporting public company, so they can take a bit of money off the table. Um, they have the scale, um, so it's a multinational public company. They go pitch for bigger contracts, win you know uh, better, uh, better contracts. They can attract better uh, talent to come and join them. Um, and it's a really, it can also be a really good transition, perhaps between an older management and a younger management. So we've had a few generational businesses come in where. You know, the younger team's been running it for the last 10 years, but they've never handed over from an equity perspective. And this gives a great way of um, by creating you know, liquid stock effectively in a public company um, you're able to partition that off and say okay this fits for the founder and this bit goes to the young management team so that they can be incentivized to take it forwards and so uh, you know, there's, there's lots of uh, circumstances where that works I mean uh, if you look on Bloomberg yesterday we just announced a, a sausage factory in Colorado literally a sausage factory not a, a euphemism for something else <laughs> that just joined us, incredible founder, incredibly motivated, um, lots of expansion plans and things that they would like to do. But when you're in that um, food services space, getting onto the right supermarket shelves, punching above your weight, competing with the big boys um, is really, really hard. Now he's part of a global multinational public company and go and pitch uh, you know, the, the Walmarts of this world and, and actually have a chance of getting through the first stage of the tender process. You know, So it's uh, uh, it, it's, it's a great way of uh, yeah, incentivizing and elevating small businesses.
0: Yeah, look, it's, a, it's an interesting point because there's a lot of, um, I guess, knowledge, awareness out there, or maybe not a, a lot of awareness out there, that you need a certain skill set, an entrepreneurial flair to get a business up and running and get it to a certain mm-hmm. size. You know, but that leadership, that that style is not the style that you need to take it from there up to an established, scalable yeah, business. Yeah, Entrepreneurs level. are great at change.
1: And um, staff um, and customers not big fans of change. <laughs> so um, so the entrepreneur is great in that phase where you have to pivot quickly, you have to change stuff, you have to adapt. And then once you've got it to a certain size, and, it, and it's smaller than people think, I think, as well, it's that kind of one to three million in revenue is kind of where you need to stop entrepreneur. Um, and um, and transition. I mean, you must have seen that a lot from the kind of coaching days. Um, Absolutely. You know, the glass ceiling everyone bumps up against.
0: Yeah, and I would have said it's even lower than that because, you know, what I see is, you know, in the UK, it's about a million pound threshold. And why a million pounds? Because that's about 10 people. And an entrepreneur can manage and lead and and know exactly what's going on with 10 people. To grow Hmm. sustainably above that, you know, and grow and keep growing as opposed to growing and bouncing back they need to change their management structure. They need to introduce a management and create a management structure, which is foreign to entrepreneurs. You know, They want to be involved yeah. in everything and call the shots, which is great when they need to be quick to react. But you know, to go beyond that, you need to systemize, you need to standardize, you need to be consistent, predictable, reliable, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, uh, uh, in one sense, a more boring management team. But yeah, yeah. They, they need they can scale it and they're reliable and consistent. Well, this is what I recommend to people about
1: moving away from the customer value to the shareholder value. It's kind of what we were talking about, you know, becoming non-executive, working on your business. You know, yeah. if you want to use, you know, that uh that creative flair and that um dynamism that you have as an entrepreneur, you know, do it in joint ventures, do it in acquisitions, do it in mergers, you know, do it do it with things that would have a uh, uh, game-changing impact on the shareholder value of the business you know I mean if you do a I mean I remember when I had my telephones company we did a joint venture with Costco to open stores in all their stores um, you know and that was a game changer it was like a, a 6x of the company um, uh, you know just by putting our joint venture together now if I hadn't been in strategic mode if I had still been in the weeds as I was for the first you know, eight years sure. in that business, I would have just looked at Costco and thought, how many phones do they have? How much do they spend on their phone bill? And I'd, I'd try and sell them that. Yes. <laughs> because I was in strategic mode, I went I went down the joint venture route, which is, you know, infinitely more valuable in that uh, in that yeah. situation. Yeah. So, yeah, there is this, you need to free yourself from that day-to-day operation and start to use that same creativity in a, in a yeah, more powerful way.
0: Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more with that because... You know, we talk about moving from an income mindset to an asset mindset. Mm, and what yeah. a lot of entrepreneurs, they, they forget to go back to their accountant and change that brief as well. Yeah, yeah. well, they just become a glorified salesperson, don't they? It's, uh... yeah. Yeah. They ask their accountant initially to set up their business to save tax, but they forget yeah. to, to switch that and go, well, we're now building a company. We want to build it as an asset to scale, you know, yeah, you yeah. mindset. Yeah that's that's a really good bit of advice
1: actually for anybody who's listening that, that's looking to sell a business have a look at how you recognize income and expenses in your in your business because i see this all the time with companies that are for sale but they have optimised their income recognition and their expense recognition to minimize tax not to maximise profit, and um, you know there's so many different. This, if you're not into account, don't worry if this is going over your head. But basically, when you sell something, you can choose when you recognise to have sold it. You can choose that you recognise the income the day you sell it, the day the person pays for it, or the day you deliver the service. And obviously, those different treatments can have a massive impact on the profitability of the business. In fact, I remember in my telecoms company in about our first or second year, I think it was, my accountant saying, and, and luckily I, I employed a, a qualified accountant as my sort of FD, um, uh, massively overqualified. We re- really needed a bookkeeper, but um, uh, we, uh, I remember him saying to me, hey, so do you want, two, you want to make a 200 grand profit? Do you want to break even or do you want to make a 200 grand loss? And I just went, well, surely it's what we sold, less what we spent, and what's left over, you know, that's, that for me, that was accounting, how the fuck would it be a different answer, you know, and um, basically the, uh, it just boggled me, I remember I was probably 18, 19 years old when I had that conversation, and I was just, I was just gobsmacked, and, and I became fascinated with it, you know, ever, ever since then, because it was all the same numbers, three completely different answers,
0: you know, yeah. It's the switch to financial management, I guess, from tax management, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. And, and if I've just got a job, I'm just interested in how much tax and how efficient it is. If I'm thinking yeah. of the business as an asset, I'm thinking long term, I'm thinking, you know, what's the you know, growth? Because I can save five grand now, but I can turn it into an asset and one, you know, it pays back five times that or, or six times mm-hmm. or 10 times even if I yeah. get my timing right and my planning right and yeah, everything is predictable. <laughs> Alrighty. So Jeremy, look, you've, you've done a stack of transactions um, yeah, with, a, with a number of people globally. Well, have you got any top tips that you'd share with business owners who are just starting to think about this now and thinking about their exit approach? What tips can you give to someone who's been there just a couple of times?
1: yeah so look i think um i think the key things would be to uh, as we've already discussed make yourself non-executive in the business the next thing i'd probably do is just go online and google due diligence questionnaire um, and download a due diligence questionnaire to get a feel of the sort of things you're going to be asked to produce in a due diligence process and and set up a little data room now everyone says data room and they think you have to download all those expensive software solutions that are out there but dropbox or google docs whatever you use at the moment to share documents will be fine. That due diligence questionnaire might have, you know, say 20 or 30 different sections in it. Make make each section a folder in a dropbox and fill it up with all of that information and maintain that, manage that on a a monthly basis because it's really useful to have that stuff up together. I would then have a a conversation with your accountant about optimizing your accounts for sale Um, and obviously go back as far as you can pre the last filed accounts that you filed um, for changing accounting treatments and things like that. So recognize intellectual property, um, don't expense it. So you bring it, uh, you know, capitalize it on the balance sheet. Um, uh, Make sure that you're recognizing income and and expenses in the most uh, profit optimizing uh, way that you can. You know, just have a really good go through the kind of financial engineering on the balance sheet to make sure you're, you're optimized for a sale. Um, get rid of all those personal fiefdom things. If you're paying the nanny or your car or sticking the old bunch of flowers for the wife on the company credit card, get rid of all of that shit. Stick it all through, um, stick it all through expenses, you um, know, peel through personal expenses and, and, and show it as something that you owe uh, the company. Bring all of that back into profit. In the, uh, in the business, um, so that it's much cleaner when somebody comes to um, look at it. Normalize your salary. Pay yourself a normal salary. I think it's really useful. If if you've underpaid yourself, they'll use that against you in a in a negotiation. Um, so you know, making sure that that uh, uh, that stacks up is important. Um, and I would even reach out to some finance brokers. Um, so speak to a finance broker and see how much money you could potentially borrow against your own business you know if you leveraged every asset in the business and took out a c-bills loan or a small firms loan guarantee loan what's the maximum you could borrow based on your cash flows um so that you can present that to people as a potential financing solution for them to buy your business from you um so make it easy for them you know like 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 selling anything often a sales process is really just a case of removing the obstacles to the sale and the two biggest obstacles to selling any business are getting people comfortable with the business the due diligence component and if you've got all those due due diligence files up together they'll it's kind of like you know the, the restaurant with the clean toilets they'll just assume everything else is fucking brilliant because you've got all of this is so organized Shit, these must be the most organized people on the planet because if they've looked at six other businesses none of them will have that ready so you'll immediately be in the top one percent of all the stuff that they've looked at and and the other biggest obstacle is finance so if you can provide them with the finance as well so here's the dd and here's the finance you've basically removed the two biggest obstacles to uh, to getting a a transaction done so that's where i would kind of start
0: well, yeah, i got to thank you for that because without possibly being aware of it, you know, if a business owner wants to go through all that and it's the first time they've done it, you know, they've never done it before and they want someone to guide them through their process, that's pretty much what we do at Succession Plus. Right, uh, great. So, we good. call it pre-due diligence. We take them through the due diligence process. We talk about it, you know, being through a buyer's lens, you know, and we give them a valuation of their business. We know a business is valued what someone will pay for it. But that realistic third-party valuation is often a shock, you know, and is followed by a mm. take of breath. Um, and set them up through that process so they know exactly what's going to come. And if you make it easy, I like, I love your point. Make it easy for the, you know, remove all the risk. Make it easy to buy the business. Then the the price will go up. You know, great yeah. tip about you know finding out what the business could fund on its own uh, as a per- purchase mechanism. So, yeah, yeah. You know, there's there's the the benefit of that. Uh, Someone having done it a number of times and doing yeah. that process daily—that's a great mm. business owners. You know, prepare in advance, go through all the due diligence, because you talk about you know the, the toilet in the restaurant. You know, it's exactly the same when they go through due diligence. When a buyer starts asking for information and it takes weeks to prepare it, yeah. Uh, they go well if i haven't got that ready uh, what the the i
1: literally had a conversation with somebody yesterday afternoon that's just walked away from a transaction because it's taking too long to get information from the, from right. the vendor um literally just uh, yes yesterday and it's really common you know it just yeah. sends up a flare that says these guys don't know what they're doing or it's a bit, or oh, well, there's too much risk or it's a bit scary or why don't they know this you know it, it's it's yeah it's Dangerous. The management
0: team is not going to be able to follow through once the owner leaves, you know, massive yeah. risk. Which all adds up to having an earnout and or the business not being yeah. able to sell, sell at all. I think brokers yeah. tell me that, you know, more than 40% of businesses that go to market, yeah, don't end up selling. So yeah, this- and, and, and the number that sell in their first year is,
1: is less than 10%. So, you know, uh, so what tends to happen is they list and after three years of kind of attrition, uh, they they sell for a much lower figure than they wanted to on a much worse deal structure than they wanted to. Um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not. The, the problem is as soon as the broker dangles the, the multi-million dollar exit in front of you, the, the, the business owners down the Mercedes garage picking leather covers,
0: you know, um, instead of being in the business, making sure that everything's working. Yeah, they take their eye off the ball. They end up in an earn out. All the risk is still on them to deliver during the earn out six months into a three year earnout, they go i'm out of here i can't take this anymore yeah yeah. that was a really lousy you know they leave a lot of cash on the table yeah totally agree
1: yeah and uh, i mean look um shameless plug for my book but i did write a book called go do deals where we talk about um some clever stuff around using loan companies for exits and stuff like that so uh yeah if anybody is genuinely interested in the topic i mean obviously getting you guys on board to support them through the whole process is, is you know, a hugely valuable uh, idea um uh, but yeah also you know just learn as much as you can about the, the subject you can never be too informed um
0: i think i think it's a really important point you know we're, we're learning and we know that we need to work on the business but we've also got to learn what we need to do to prepare for exit. We're only going to do this once for for many of the business owners and we want to make sure that it counts and it delivers what you're hoping it will deliver. So, hey, Jeremy, fantastic talking to you. Thanks for sharing your top tips with the listeners. Really appreciate your time and your wisdom today.
1: Awesome. Glad you enjoyed it. And it was just in time because little people are returning back from school. So, (laughs) (laughs)
0: Fantastic. (laughs) Great time to join us. Alrighty, yeah. we we'll, might uh, call it a day there. Thanks again. Bye.